You see, Baldrick, in order to prevent war in Europe, two super blocks developed. Us, the French and the Russians on one side, and the Germans and Austro-Hungary on the other. The idea was to have two vast opposing armies, each acting as the other's deterrent. That way, there could never be a war. But this is a sort of a war, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's right. You see, there was a tiny flaw in the plan. What was that, sir? It was bollocks. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to part 9 of the Essence of Anarchy series. In this episode I'll be looking at the provision of security. We may think of security as having an inner and outer aspect, with internal security consisting of the police, justice and prison system, and external security being the military and spy agencies. I'll be covering both of these. Non-state consensual security raises different challenges than the previous areas we've looked at. Providing consensual education, healthcare and social welfare is primarily a challenge of funding. Security, whilst also being that, presents separate difficulties. With regard to external threats, how could we hope to coordinate defence against an invasion absent having one group firmly in charge. Will everyone organise their own storming of Normandy? As for internal security, how can we police society when everyone can hire their own police officer? Would this be akin to each football team bringing their own referee? In my own study of anarchism, these were the hardest questions to answer. And frankly, I just left them alone for several years until every other aspect was straight in my mind. I do think the easier of the two is external security, so let's deal with that first. Difficulties of coordinating national security aside, one of the places we are most likely to find general agreement is in a profound mistrust of the state's war power. There's every chance you're listening to this in a country where the state has used your taxes to bring death and destruction to foreign lands. In my lifetime, I've witnessed the bombing of Serbia, the utter devastation of Iraq and Libya, and now, at the time of recording, a campaign of genocide in Yemen. All of this from the same people who claim a monopolistic right to provide you with healthcare and educate your children. Okay, so the state is a murder machine, but they do provide necessary security. Do we then just need to rein in the more murderous aspects? Well, let's look at that. How good is the security? To examine this question, I have a thought experiment in mind. Imagine if at the turn of the 20th century, Britain had no provision for national defence. Imagine if you were tasked with hiring a private security company to do the job. After interviews, you awarded one of them a 25-year contract. Then you go and live in a monastery somewhere, returning in 1925 to see how they're doing. Now. Bearing in mind their sole job is to keep the British people safe from external threats, how do you think their report might sound when you ask them how it's been going? Not bad. Nearly 20 years of no problems at all. After we got that thing with the boars finished off, just one little hiccup in the middle, I'm afraid. Bit of a scuffle on the continent, you see. Nope, no real threat of invasion, but we really thought we'd best intervene. Things got a bit out of hand and we ended up having to conscript all the young men in the country to sort it out. Total bill? Just over a million dead, 
with another one and a half million wounded, somewhere in the region of £50 billion spent. Do you believe you would be impressed with this report? Would you think the private company had clearly done its very best under challenging circumstances? Or would you conclude that it was perhaps time to shop around? Let's say you decided on the former and renewed the company's contract for another 25 years, at which point you return to check in again. Another half million dead, I'm afraid. Various cities flattened, but we do hope to have the debt paid off within 60 years. Also, I should mention a pressing incident in Korea. This example is intended to illustrate the different way we view state and private services. Whilst mourning the dead, the British people celebrate their victories in the wars, with only a minority seeing it as a failing that they happened at all. It's reasonable to assume that had Britain ended up in a major conflict with the Soviet Union sometime in the 60s, one where half of England was nuked, British people today would view this as a necessary sacrifice and celebrate the wisdom of the leaders who brought them through it. Let us then shop around. What would a consensual model of national defence look like? The problem with the coercive model is that the state suffers no ill consequences for involving its country in war. The British Labour Party was not disbanded after the debacle in Iraq. Neither were the Republicans. Tony Blair and George W. Bush remain out of jail. The state is also subject to pressure from forces who can benefit from war, most obviously weapons manufacturers and foreign regimes. States can also be captured by ideologues, who seek to remake the world in their image. This doesn't even have to be for nefarious reasons. There are none so dangerous as those who believe themselves to be truly good. What we would ideally want, then, is a system where powerful forces lose out drastically whenever war breaks out. These forces then act to counterbalance, and hopefully overcome, those who seek to benefit from death and destruction. One possible model for this could be insurance companies. Imagine if house insurance policies, in addition to covering things like fire and storm damage, extended to cover damage incurred in war. For the most part, the insurance companies would be collecting money for nothing. However, if war ever did break out, they and their financial backers would stand to lose an incomprehensible amount of money. It is strongly in their interest, then, to take anti-war action. This could be through using diplomats to resolve conflict, or it could come down to installing surface-to-air missile launchers to deter invaders. To be clear, I am not suggesting this is the way it would be done in a society based upon consent. Such a society would be so different in so many ways that a solution might arise none of us could imagine from where we are now. Perhaps in a consensual society, a large percentage of people would be armed. Some historians believe high gun ownership is what spared Switzerland from invasion during World War II. I wouldn't want to give the impression I'm a more violent person than I actually am either. I'm very open to the possibility of non-violent solutions to conflict. Denmark, for example, managed to protect the vast majority of its Jewish population from the Nazis by employing non-violent resistance measures. The overwhelming point is, given its track record, there could be no service we should be more concerned about removing from the hands of the state than national defence. Let's now look at internal security, policing and the justice system. 
This is really the aspect that's most difficult to wrap one's mind around. Our current policing system grows out of feudalism, where a lord would exert a monopoly on violence over a given area of land. Peasants would pay the lord for protection, first and foremost from the lord himself, and then from threats arising inside and outside the community. If the lord failed to provide this protection, peasants had little recourse due to his monopoly over their land. In modern times, both protection rackets and state policing grow out of this system, with the latter being a type of the former. Should you not consent to pay your taxes, it will be the same agents who claim to protect you who will ultimately come to accost you. Am I talking about the mob or the state here? There's no way for you to know. Back in feudal times, there was one country that was different. Put some warm clothes on and we'll take a trip to medieval Iceland to examine an alternative form of security provision. Vikings endured the perilous journey from Norway to Iceland in order to escape the feudal system with its lords and kings. Distrustful of what we would call a state, in Iceland there was no public property. All land was privately owned. The class who in the rest of Europe we might call lords still worked providing security to the peasant farmers. The major difference was, these lords did not have a monopoly over any given area of land. Farmers were free to choose which lord they wanted to form a contract with, and could change if they were displeased with the service. Now, I've played a bit of a trick on you. What I said is historically accurate, but the Icelandic lords really weren't lords at all. Rather, they were private security providers. That's a term that strikes fear into the heart, conjuring up images of unaccountable mercenaries or prisons run for profit. This is why I wanted to ease into it with language that's more familiar. To make the distinction here, the word private does not mean consensual if those providers are working for a coercive entity such as the state. This is the case with the military contractors who have been so controversial in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's not the case, however, if the providers are working for non-coercive individuals or groups. The benefits of a consensual security system are the same benefits of anything else being consensual. Power is centred with the consumer to ensure they get the best service possible. This has both obvious short-term and not-so-obvious long-term implications. Remember what I said about the monopolization of the gardening industry, that the most nefarious aspect was also the hardest to spot. I suggested that there is no pressure for a gardening firm using coercion to invest in new technology. They will still be using manual shears long after the development of electric hedge trimmers. I went on to illustrate how coercion retards progress in medicine, at unimaginable cost. Actually though, the principle holds true in all areas. We can consider any service, including security, to be a form of technology which should innovate with time. If I look up crime statistics for London, I find things have gotten considerably worse over the past 10 years. From 2010 to 20, violent crime rose from 139 to 222,000 incidents per year. There are now over 15,000 knife crimes a year, with acid attacks proving increasingly popular too. This is during a time period where technology has continuously improved, and dramatically so. 
Over those same years, we went from carrying phones you could send text messages and play Snake on to the supercomputers we have in our pockets today. And yet policing, security provision, actually got worse. Londoners are now less safe walking the streets. I'm sure there's a whole load of ways the reasons for this could be analysed, but I would suggest that policing, unlike telephones, is a technology that isn't subject to market pressure and therefore remains stagnant. Let's look at some of the problems that coercive policing gives rise to that would be unlikely to occur with a consensual system. First off, a consensual system would be unable to prosecute a prohibitionist war on drug users. There certainly may exist areas where drug use is banned, but those areas could not extend over vast distances. The reason I sound so confident about this is that with consensual policing, people are billed directly for the service they receive. The services people overwhelmingly want are protection of life and property. Drug prohibition, although widely supported, can only be funded through coercive means. How much would you be willing to pay to ensure somebody on the far side of town is locked in a cage for taking a drug? Even if you are very concerned about drugs, I think it's self-evident that there are better ways to direct that money than detaining and traumatising users. The implications of this are not small. Obviously, the illegal drugs trade is a massive generator of crimes against person and property. In its absence, the price of drugs would crash and the criminal element who currently run the industry would be out of business. Economist Jeffrey Myron estimates that in the absence of prohibition, the murder rate in the United States would be cut in half. That vast reduction would actually be small when compared to where drug violence has its major impact, in South and Central America. Another factor to consider is all the actions that coercive police take that prevent people from being able to defend themselves. If houses in your community are constantly being burgled, you could take steps to prevent this through erecting gates, checking who enters and exits the area, installing razor wire on top of walls, and ultimately, being armed. Coercive police may not be able to stop the burglars, but they will turn up and prevent you from defending yourself. Obviously, consensual police would have no mandate to do this. Things like gun rights are a massive conversation in themselves. I'm not looking to make a case for the effectiveness of firearms, or any of the other strategies I've mentioned here. Only to point out that coercive police clearly do act in a way that prevents people protecting themselves from crime. Those crazy Americans that do advocate gun rights point out that firearms are used to prevent anything up to 3 million crimes each year. So again, we're not talking about a negligible issue. Could it be then that coercive policing is actually generating far more crime than it prevents? Could it be that if the police suddenly popped out of existence, society would quickly reorganise itself and find far more effective consensual solutions to crime? I think I'll end this episode now and leave you to contemplate that shocking conclusion. There are some common objections to a consensual approach, such as wouldn't competing security firms go to war with each other? I'll address them and any other questions in a supplementary episode if anyone wants me to. I've particularly drawn on the work of economist Robert Murphy for some of the content of this episode, 
I'll link to his work in the comments box. Next time, we'll move on to the conclusion of the body of the series. Thanks for listening.